Welcome to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we will explore the interesting stories of business executives, entrepreneurs, and industry leaders who are shaking things up and growing their companies. It is time to make some waves. Now, here's your host, Tom Singer. Hey, hey, and welcome to another episode of Making Waves at Sea Level, the podcast formerly known as Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. That's right. We shifted it up a little bit this year. We're, we're, we're focusing a little bit more on executives who are doing things to make waves in their industry uh, and growing their companies and, and any other way that they're really impacting humanity. And today I'm excited. I actually ignore pitches from PR people who want to be on this show. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. I do two episodes a week of this show. Uh, usually they're both interviews, but I went through a while where one show was just me talking. Um, so maximum, we've got 104 episodes a year. And uh, let's see, I get something like 25 inquiries a week from people wanting to be on making waves at sea level. And so if it's coming in cold from a PR person, I usually just flat out ignore it. But there was one and she was pitching this guy who'd written a book on PR and his name was Jeff Hahn. And I'm like, wait a minute. Is this the same Jeff Hahn from Austin, Texas, who I used to sit on a board at the Chamber of Commerce with like 20 years ago? And so I looked him up and it's the same guy and he's really smart and he knows a lot about PR, especially when it comes to crisis. I mean, think about that. Companies in crisis, that's the time that leaders have to make waves. And I mean the good kind. Uh, So Jeff, he's a crisis guy. He helps his clients, especially in the food industry, but this translates to everybody. He helps helps them get out of a jam. Catch that double entendre because he works in the food industry. If they're in jam, maybe they're in jelly. I'm not sure. But he helps them get out of a jam. Uh, mainly, he helps big brands in foods that you he rattled off some companies. You've heard of them all. A lot of them get into PR trouble. There could be a food recall. There could be something else going on. When that happens, they call Jeff Hahn. And he takes over the PR. So, Jeff, welcome to Making Waves at Sea Level. Tom, great to be here. Has it really been 20 years? It's easily been 20 years because I don't think we've (laughs) crossed paths since I started speaking full time. And that was 12 years ago. So it's at least been 15 years. That seems right. I guess you're right. As I roll back, the, I'm in the Wayback Machine. It's probably the last time we saw each other was at some chamber of commerce banquet or and that was pre-covid and i don't remember anything pre-covid <laughs> pre-covid by 20 years but yeah absolutely now uh this is an audio only podcast but we're on zoom and i can actually see you and what's frightening is jeff hahn hasn't aged so i'm thinking maybe he's like a vampire i'm not sure because uh he hasn't gotten any older than he was last time i saw him but uh that's that's a whole nother interview so Jeff, tell us about your book, Breaking Bad News. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Well, Breaking Bad News is just out now. And really, it's a project that's taken me seven years to try and encapsulate my 30 years of experience in the crisis communication function of PR. And what I've basically done is, well, my point of view on crisis communication is different. Uh, Many people believe it's like a dark art (laughs) uh, that 
only these hired guns who somehow or another have this unique connection into the universe can do crisis comms really well. And I, uh, my point of view is exactly the opposite. It's not a dark art. It's actually a system. And you can know the system. You just need to be able to work it. So what I've done is create a model through which you can employ 12 different tools to work your way down through a crisis situation. So I set up this scenario that effectively shows in two hours, here's how you can activate your rapid response team and effectively respond to a crisis situation. So what kind of crisis is, I mean, I know you probably can't talk about everybody, but what's the kind of crisis where Jeff gets called in? Typically the crisis situations occur when something goes public. You know, if it's an organization that has an internal problem, uh, yeah, I have some clients that'll call me and say, hey, we've got to work this interesting internal issue so that it doesn't become an external issue. But most of the time, they are issues that have already emerged into the public space. And so think about it from a food brand standpoint. It could be, um, oh, uh, just last week, red onions being recalled. And I might get a call from the red onion company saying, we need to not only manage the regulatory component of the recall, which our team does, for clients, but there's also a media relations component to the red onion recall. And you can think back in time over, even since last year, last summer was the summer of Romaine in my mind. Romaine <laughs> had such a tough time. Uh, it just kept getting recall after recall after recall. I, I remember that. There was a lot of, there was certainly a lot of fear of lettuce last year. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you got reminder of that every time you went into the grocery store. And those racks, especially ready-made salads, were missing. Mm-hmm. So you'll find um, opportunities like that to support a brand as they not only properly navigate through a recall, but then in the rebuilding of the brand and the trust of the brand in the aftermath. Those are really the day-to-day kinds of crises that we get involved with. But um, in the early days of COVID-19, we were extremely busy helping the brands we support just communicate what the implications for COVID-19 for their business were, both internally and externally. So you just never know what the particular issue is going to be, but the um, fingerprints are, this is public and it's negative. When those two things come together, my phone lights up. So how did you get into the crisis piece of it? I mean, I, I know you uh, when you originally worked for Carrie and then you bought her business. Uh, you know, it was sort of more traditional PR. How did you become the, 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 the crisis king? Yeah, in fact, even in the years before I joined Tate Austin working for Carrie, um, I'd spent 15 years in the semiconductor business with Motorola. And it's there that I, uh, in my very early years, was – put onto the crisis team as the administrator, basically the coordinator. And so through that process, over 15 years, I was involved in just about every kind of crisis you could imagine from Y2K to um, sulfuric acid releases, <laughs> uh, things that are environment, health and safety related, uh, to worker deaths and fatalities to domestic violence actually spilling over into the workplace. 
Um, I even through that process, I was on one of the founding members of the Motorola Marathon back when Austin had uh, that Motorola was the founder of that race. It's still going on. And I was a part of it for 25 years. But what I figured out in the early days as the comms guy for the marathon was, oh, um, people die when they run marathons. So <laughs> Did, this, does that happen? Does that happen often? Well, about one every, I think statistically, it's about one every 120,000. So it's low probability. And in fact, um, a fatality may be recorded, but then a person might be revived. So you just never know how the numbers shake, but I have been a party to several of those as I've done work for Austin Marathon, Chicago Marathon, Pittsburgh Marathon, etc. So I had this uh, strange and wonderful sidekick or sideline as a marathon <laughs> crisis guy. And it just sort of uh, snowballed from that point. Our business, of course, now is really primarily focused on food, and it's a natural outgrowth of uh, the things that food businesses uh, face. So, tell us about your your firm today. How big is it? Uh, what uh, give us the the name of it? I've like I said, I've lost touch with you for a while. So, give me give me sort of an update on uh, on on your PR firm. Yeah, sure. It's Apron Food PR. We're thirty three people today, and we have uh, clients that really range across the region. The and some that are national, but mostly regional. We um, spend a lot of time promoting food brands, and that might be a new release, a new product, etc. But the other part of the business is this protection part, which is my expertise. My the other side of the business, the the promotions team, they they get to do fun things. They just think it's really cool. Hey, we're going to promote a new menu item for a client or a new product. And I just uh, am thrilled when they are able to do that. But I don't get to participate in that fun. (laughs) So how did you you make the pivot to food as your specialty? It's really a a more interestingly long story than short. Um, I grew up on a farm in Iowa. And so I've always been in the food business as a farmer revisiting that and getting reacquainted with it after the semiconductor, my 15 years in semiconductor, uh, was just one of those wonderful discoveries like, oh, I can reconnect to my farming roots through this business. And we have over the years just accumulated a really nice portfolio of wonderful food brands. Nice. Nice. So you've worked with a lot of companies, large and small. So what advice do you have for executives to, number one, keep them out of a crisis, and number two, deal with it when it happens? Well, the number one thing that happens that goes wrong when a crisis actually occurs, and it's not specific to any industry, but it is the, um, the single most recognizable failure for a brand responding to crisis or in crisis, and it's their failure to properly activate a decision-making team. I call them rapid response teams, but the failure in preparation of who's on that team, who sits in the, in the chairs that have specific roles is one of those exceptionally preventable failures, uh, but brands don't think about it a lot of times. They, uh, they just sort of make assumptions. Well, if something goes wrong, I guess this person and that person, I guess they'll help, et cetera. But a really well-defined rapid response team, which I cover in one of the chapters of the book and prescribe the roles, 
makes all the difference in the world. After that, you're going to be relying on a lot of judgment and executive experience. But the failure to define the, the team is the defining and common denominator of most brands who either succeed or fail through crisis. And there are very specific roles. I'll talk about those. There's a chief decision maker, not necessarily the CEO, by the way. It just needs to be somebody who's empowered to make decisions on the part of the brand. There is a second, a, a secondary decision maker, someone who is the alternate, alternate. Uh, and you need that because your mother was right. Nothing good ever happens after midnight, except <laughs> crisis. And that's when the chief decision maker is on a plane, out of touch, on vacation, etc. So you need an alternate. But the third role that is often overlooked is the crisis team coordinator, that rapid response team administrator that lights up the uh, response room. And that lighting up means activating the team. There are tools to do that with one touch of a button these days. It means um, effectively lighting up the shared workspaces, bringing those online, and then being the scribe to understand the ebb and flow of decision-making that's happening. Team coordinator is possibly the second or third most important decision-maker, decision point or role in the team. And then you've got your subject matter experts, comms, legal, um, operation, subject matter experts, HR sometimes if they're needed. But um, those are the roles that brands often fail to set into place and say, if we just have those right and you peop you three people know what you're doing, uh, we can get the rest right. So what you're saying is, is that these things should be set up long before a crisis happens. It shouldn't be like, oh, we're in a massive crisis with a recall of, you know, blue onions or whatever. Uh, what do we do? This right. should be, there should be a crisis plan in place if you're a brand. Yeah. And it only has to be as big as a business card. Here's our crisis plan. This is the phone number we call. This is the Zoom conference line that we get in on, or this is the conference room we go to. If you'll just make your, your crisis plan that big and those designated people carry that card, it, you're ahead of most. And then the next thing on the card is call Jeff Hahn. <laughs> yeah, I try to put my name and contact info on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say on the back of a business card, you actually mean the back of your business card. <laughs> That'd be ideal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's talk a little more about crises. So nobody wants to have a crisis, but we've all seen companies do it. And we've seen companies bounce back well, and we've seen crises destroy careers. So give us some examples of of. You know, maybe you can't talk about your clients, but let's talk about some well-known examples of people who've handled a crisis well. Yeah, you can see the the um, places that they are in the, in the phase of a crisis and where they fail the most. I think one of the most famous examples we all remember is British Petroleum. Mm -hmm. The CEO uttered the famous words, "I'd like my life back." <laughs> what, well, what happened there? Well, what Oops. happened there was. A CEO who, first of all, was freelancing, um, was in a conversation with a local reporter who he didn't take seriously, said some things that he shouldn't have, and boom, he's no longer the CEO. Uh, he got his wish. He's no longer. He got his life back. 
Um, that was a failure right away of a disciplined crisis communication team working together to field all inbounds. Never should you require your chief decision maker to be put in spokesperson role. So that was one of those great examples that um, you, you can't help but remember. Another couple of, that always come to mind and people talk about, I often have to correct them on this one, but you hear people talk about the famous Johnson & Johnson Tylenol. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was the millennials don't know what that was because they weren't born yet. This had to be right. 30, this had to be 30 plus years ago. Exactly. Um, and what was uh, the truth of that? We, we lose it in our nostalgia. Oh, didn't Tylenol just set the benchmark for how to do a great crisis? Blah, blah, blah. And the truth is absolutely not. Um, Tylenol and Johnson and Johnson did a terrible job of managing that crisis. It's just that so much of it wasn't known. There was no social media. There were no cell phones. There were no cameras back then. In fact, it was Walgreens and CVS uh, that initiated the recall of cyanide-laced Tylenol. Then Johnson and Johnson, a couple of days later, finally said, oh, yeah, that's probably a good idea. We should do that. Um, so I always, it's always interesting to see how people interpret those events over time. And finally, I would say even more, more recently in 2015, one of the more memorable ones for you and I, Tom, because it's so close to home, is Bluebell ice cream. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For those of you outside of Texas, Bluebell ice cream is God's gift to Texas. We, we get it. You don't. But there was, a, <laughs> there was a while where nobody got it. That's right. Um, long story short, just to inform your listeners, Bluebell ice cream was uh, contaminated with a bacteria and three people died. Those, um, the, that particular crisis, when you study how it was handled, was again one of those, when you look in the rearview mirror, you could have said to yourself, you know, Bluebell had a chance to embrace and harness the love that you just displayed for that brand, which was deep as a 110 year old brand that everybody loved and they failed to do so. Instead, Bluebell took a very in the bunker kind of uh, position kind of footing, And it ended up while the brand still exists, many people would be surprised to know that, uh, the family that operated that brand is not not involved any longer. Oh, I didn't know. Fact, I, see, I, I didn't. I didn't know that either. All all I remember is it was out of the stores for a long time because they shut everything down, and when yep. it came back, people lined up at my supermarket like a hundred people deep to buy however many, you know, there were. It was like I was there for another reason. I wasn't standing in line to buy ice cream, but there were a hundred people waiting to rush the ice cream. <laughs> Yeah, and it's a testament to the um, love of the brand. And I was, I've always been surprised why Bluebell didn't harness that love. They instead were very defensive. And now um, the former CEO, well, first of all, the company ended up having to borrow a gigantic amount of money to stay in business. And so a third of the business is now owned by someone else. Mm-hmm. The... Um, CEO is also under indictment for conspiracy to cover up the recalls and and have tainted food items removed from shelves without telling retailers. 
So it's just one of those situations where you think about, as you think about best practices, hey, you know what? It's still true. The, the cover-up's always worse than the crime, number one. Number two, when you got such brand love, figure out a way to use it. Jeff, you, you've got all my listeners so sad with those, those three stories. We, we need to have some good stories. <laughs> we need some stories of where companies have handled crisis well. You do see some, and you'll be surprised to know that I think Chipotle has handled their long running. I mean, they've been in kind of a running gunfight. That's uh, that's an interesting choice of words, running. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's one thing after another for, for poor Chipotle. But I will say that I think from a brand standpoint, look, um, they really put a stake in the ground around being fresh. Fresh foods, fresh ingredients, freshly prepared and served. While they um, failed in a number of circumstances, I think I document in Breaking Bad News 20 different situations where I said, they said this, and this is how, uh, I don't think that they, in the fight, did as well as they could have. And of course, that's great because I can armchair quarterback this. But um I still admire them because they stuck to their principles. They, they in fact, do believe very strongly in their fresh proposition, and they've used it as a North Star to stay in business, and they weathered an enormous storm mm -hmm. in the food business, and there's still a lot of Chipotle customers who won't go back, but uh, if we're honest with ourselves, they're still in business, and they're actually doing quite well. It's it's one of the only chains I eat at. I actually like myself a good Chipotle. Yeah, me too. And I'm still very um, enamored with the freshness of their product. What we as consumers have a hard time understanding is that um, there's some trade-off in that. What Chipotle came to understand is that, boy, you've got to double down on the food safety management practices. And consumers have to know, look, your food's not being uh, gamma rayed. Uh, or thrown into a deep fryer. Uh, it's this is one of those kinds of things when you demand fresh, fresh, fresh. That um, what we come to realize is food companies also have to deliver on the food safety side of it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a one of those things I think consumers have been a little bit forgiving to Chipotle or around. Okay, one more good story where someone else has done it well. Whole Foods has done good stuff over the years. Um, there was this really weird cake incident at Whole Foods. Okay, a guy walks in. He says, I've ordered a birthday cake. He um, goes out to the parking lot, and he supposedly opens up the food, uh, opens up the cake, and it has a derogatory message on it. Anti-gay slur. He um, does a video recording, posts it online, and um, immediately social media erupts against Whole Foods. Whole Foods did a masterful job on this. In less than 24 hours, in fact, I would say, if I'm remembering the time clock on this, it's probably less than 12 hours. They had video footage, fully um, worked through that, saw that, in fact, it was the customer that tampered with the cake it didn't happen at whole foods and in fact uh, the person who served him the bakery um, 
was in fact uh, someone who was very sympathetic to uh, LGBT causes. And so Whole Foods didn't hesitate. They turned right around and, and uh, said, this guy's an absolute fraud. And they didn't try to uh, work it behind the scenes. They didn't try to uh, manage this in a way that tamped it down. No, they came right back and defended themselves. I love that. I was so proud of Whole Foods that day. I said, yes, finally, stand up. So when a company is in the right, they need to stand up for themselves. Absolutely, especially because social media is such a, a instant outrage platform. Um, you you, you got to get think? in there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to get in there and not waste any time. And you've got to set a narrative in place that allows you to control the situation. Hmm. And brands are often really reluctant to do that. There's sort of this weird, um, it's kind of a weird default that brands say, well, we must have done something wrong. Well, that's crap. No, um, stand up and push back. <laughs> Get in there quickly and set the narrative. So Jeff, I have a couple of more questions for you, but first I have to thank the sponsor of this episode. So this episode, it's brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly, they take the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. They set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you sound amazing. Podfly does all the heavy lifting and that pesky technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing really cool people who are making waves, like Jeff Hahn. Hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know, I know that some of you do, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. And yes, I'm quite aware I need them to change that to podfly.net slash making waves. We just haven't gotten around to that yet. So podfly.net slash cool things. So Jeff, I used to call the show cool things entrepreneurs do. What's the coolest thing you're doing in business right now? Well, I think um, I'm looking right now at the landscape of uh, the agency world and asking myself on the on the back end of COVID-19, what's the world going to be like? In my business, I believe it's going to be more and more specialized. So I continue to take uh, chunks of my company and pull them apart into separate brands. The food business now has its own brand. My energy business has its own brand. And um, asking the leaders of those brands who now have set up their set them up on their own P&Ls, I'm asking them to become experts in their spaces. Really drill down deep. The, the, the age, in my opinion, of the quote-unquote full-service agency um, has come close to an end. Uh, clients, even big clients, we even had a, we had a wonderful pitch with a Fortune 200 company two weeks ago, and they said, we'll never hire another big agency. Um, these big agencies or full service agencies are undifferentiated. They don't invest in the expertise that the clients need. And so I'm the cool thing I'm doing right now with my business is pulling it apart and taking that. If you think about it from a T structure, we used to have a T with a wide top and a short stem going the opposite direction, shrinking the top and making that stem really deep. Mm. And it's a difficult turn to make. 
because you've got to commit to a category and you got to love that category as much or more than your clients. Sure. Well, it's a good thing that uh, you love food. I like food and it shows. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, uh, the our brand is also... Um, we represent beverage brands of all kinds, and so that's where I really get in trouble. <laughs> nice, nice. So there's got to there's got to be some distilleries and wineries in that list. Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, we did a new business pitch just today with a wine category brand. Very interesting cultural problems inside of that particular organizations. I hope we get it because I think we can do a lot of good there. But um, fascinating. Once you once you drill way down deep into a particular category, many agencies are afraid to do this because they don't want to give up variety. Mm -hmm. Boy, you find out so much the expansiveness of a particular industry. And so that's pretty exciting to me. Yeah. So I've started working for an executive search firm. And and that's that's interesting because a lot of the people I work with go very, very, very deep into certain categories. So I'm still I'm still trying to find my home within that company. But uh, a lot of people go really deep in a single industry as a search professional. So, yeah, it makes sense. And um, I think it's important to find a category that you're really personally interested in. Like my farming days make me interested in food. Um, and for my energy business, what the way I put those two together is we operate at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy. Mm -hmm. I don't um, get invited to parties where luxury brands are. I don't go on cruise ships. That's for cool people. I don't, I don't get to, I don't get invited to those things. I don't go on those things. <laughs> so <laughs> I know where my position is and that's where I'm comfortable and most interested in. So Jeff, when you look out at the world of business, what executive out there do you see where you say, wow, they're making waves in, in their vertical, whatever it is? Who do you admire? Oh, fantastic question. And boy, there are so many. I think lately I've um, come to admire Tim Cook at Apple as much or more than any CEO because of his quiet discipline It'd be surprising, I think, to most people to know that Steve Jobs, as big in the world as he was, um, created a company that the only thing Tim Cook has done is double the revenue. Mm -hmm. And um, that is a massive, massive uh, undertaking and the ability of a quiet, contemplative guy with a lot of discipline just to survive in the wake of Steve Jobs and he reminds me so much of that famous Leonard Bernstein quote. Bernstein, who has conducted the New York Philharmonic, was once asked, hey, um, what's the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play? And Bernstein's response was very thoughtful. He said, after some time, he said, hmm, uh, second fiddle. <laughs> Which reminded me of the attributes I love in the best uh, leaders. They're humble. They pursue uh, excellence and they're patient, not only with others, but themselves. Still, they're going to take that chair and they're going to work it until such time as it's their moment. You know, it's interesting. You, you, you talk about uh, Tim Cook in, in that manner. It would be an interesting study to go and see how people do who have to follow giant shoes CEO, like celebrity CEOs. How yeah. does the next person do? I bet you most of them don't double the company. No, no, that kind of performance is just unheard of. And you can track it across big, large companies. Uh, Microsoft in the wake of Bill Gates, 
Um, that I think has been a little bit choppy, especially when they bought Nokia. I could never understand that. <laughs> um, but those feel like irrational movements, just trying to replicate some sort of silver bullet or magic potion. Sure. Um, and it's interesting, you know, all, all leaders face that situation and have to grow into their own. Uh, but I'm, I'm not in any danger of having to uh, take the place of anybody at a large corporation. So that's good for me. But I do like that. Um, I take a lot of lessons from the way I see those things being carried out with a lot of humility and um, a great deal of thought. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite ones to key off of and study. Sure. So if someone's listening to this and, and they want to read your book or they have a food company who's like, yep, we need some better PR or God forbid we have a crisis. How do people find you? Uh, best way to do that is through my book website, breakingbadnewsbook.com. And I've got uh, the advanced cop, advanced reader copies of Breaking Bad News. You can go on there. Sign up for one, and I'll send one to you free. I've got a few hundred of those left. Nice. So now's the time to get one. Nice. Hurry. Hurry, everybody. Go. <laughs> go Go to BreakingBadNewsBook.com. Get a free one. Uh, I always like getting those advanced reader copies. Those are always kind of fun. I get a lot of them because I host a podcast, so that's, that's always good. When is the official uh, release of the book? I'm thinking it's December 1st. Okay. Awesome. Yep. We'll, we'll I'm going to keep... add in an extra case study or two, and then uh, we'll – uh, reprint it and be ready to roll just in time for the holidays. Awesome. Well, we'll keep our eyes open for that. Jeff Hahn, thank you so much for being here on Making Waves at Sea Level. Any last words? I've enjoyed being here, Tom, and it's great to see you after all these years. Yeah, it's been a we, long time. So, I'll see you in 20 years, okay? That's right. 15 more years. We'll, we'll have to see each other again. Uh, <laughs> and thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. I say it every single time. If it wasn't for the audience, why would we even do the show? So uh, if you like the show, do me a favor. Jump over to Apple Podcasts or, or wherever you get your, your love for podcasts and leave a review. Hang on. I'll wait. Okay, thank you for going and doing that. But more important than the review, go tell a friend. Uh, when I meet people who watch this show, I always say, how did you find it? And they always say, somebody else told me that this podcast sucks less than other podcasts. So that's my new tagline. We suck less than other podcasts. But uh, somebody literally told me that once. And I was like, thank you, maybe? Anyway, uh, go tell people. Go on to social media. Let people know we exist. Tell them that uh, we're the cool podcast. Because uh, on Twitter, I didn't change the, when I changed the name of the podcast, I kept it at cool podcast because even by a new name we're still the coolest podcast out there and we're going to be back in a couple of days with an interview with somebody making waves like jeff hahn but in the meantime go out there make sure your career ladder is against the correct wall because there's nothing worse than climbing that ladder getting to the top and finding out oh my gosh i just did this and it's not where i want to be why do i know that because i used to do that uh and then also uh get out there and try some new things and while you're at it Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast. Without your listening to these in-depth conversations, there would be no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at TomSinger.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.